If you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It'll be a few minutes kind of working our way into the passage. As Isaac mentioned, we're involved in a series where we're asking the question, what is it that causes our lives to be trustworthy? And it's an important question for any who desire to influence others to follow Jesus. You know, if we hope to sustain any influence in the lives of people, this question, what, what causes them to, what causes my life to be reliable enough, winsome enough, uh, transparent enough that they would take an interest in Jesus because of my life? And we've been reflecting in the process on how trustworthy our lives are. This is not intended to be a, a heady thing. But I'm asking all of us to, to do a lot of just sober reflecting on is my life trustworthy? You know, would, would other people describe it that way? And we're exploring four characteristics. We're kind of through two of them, halfway through the third. The first characteristic was this. Our lives become trustworthy when we live well with God in the present. You know, and if you recall, we, we talked about the fact that um, we, you know, living a thoughtful spiritual journey that is steadfast, resilient, and faithful. In every imaginable season of life we find ourselves, we, we steadily follow Jesus there. We experience God's presence with it. We're not living in a nostalgic past or some romanticized future. We're living now with Jesus in whatever circumstances he allows into our lives, we're gonna live well with God there. We're gonna follow him. The second characteristic of a life that becomes trustworthy. Our lives become trustworthy when we display a distinctive integrity. A distinctive integrity. There's something different about us because of Jesus. And we allow nothing to compromise our love for Christ and our loyalty for Christ. But as people get close to us, what they discover is that Jesus is a very real, meaningful, vibrant, flourishing part of who we are. Last week we began, our lives become trustworthy when our relationships are marked by courageous honesty and courageous humility. And we'll continue that this morning, but courageous honesty shows up when we hold one another accountable to following Jesus well. So this desire to live with integrity and follow Jesus well, we need one another to hold us accountable to living like that. That's honesty. Uh, courageous humility shows up when we're responsive to courageous honesty. <laughs> when people step into our lives, we're willing to work through the, the tensions that arise because we share a desire to become more like Jesus and because we love one another. Uh, the final characteristic, and we'll kind of pause after this week as we enter Lent and Easter, we'll look at this after Easter, and we're gonna spend many weeks here because it's the biggest idea, our lives become trustworthy when we live with radical generosity. When people bump into us and they see a level of generosity with our time and our resources and our life experience and our money that is almost irrational in the generosity, people trust it. It's a good thing. Well, this morning, 
We're going to go back and continue, as Isaac said before we left off last week, in talking about this idea of courageous honesty and courageous humility. So I want to, I want to now just kind of jump in. And again, I want to introduce, I want to, I got to lead us into the passage this morning. Um, Jesus-shaped friendships are challenging. Um, now, other friendships, when, when you start thinking about friendships, other friendships, they feel natural and unforced. Think of the relationships that you have with so many people. Often our friendships are formed around shared backgrounds and shared interests. We have things in common with each other, and so the relationships just naturally seem to come together. You don't have to force that. Or, or they come together around a common season of life. You're, you're raising your children with the same ages, or, or you're empty nesters, and there's just a commonality of the season of life that makes the relationship feel natural, and conversation is easy, and, and chemistry is comfortable. We all know that, don't we? These are just the natural things in friendship. But intentional spiritual friendships often feel unnatural and forced. We've experienced that too, haven't we? Um, you see, while rich and rewarding once we experience them, you, know, you step into a rich spiritual friendship and man, there's nothing like it. But while it's rich and rewarding, that type of spiritual friendship requires different things from us. It doesn't simply require shared interests, common background, common loves, all those things. They're there too, but it requires something different, something more. For example, it requires a vision for what Jesus is doing in someone's story. Um, and, and, and that means it requires discernment and wisdom and patience as we step into that story. Because we're, we're entering someone's life not just as a friend, but someone who Jesus is shaping and growing and maturing and, and we're becoming a part of that in an intentional way and, and we wanna have the, the share Jesus' vision for who that person is becoming. Um, it requires the sharing of our internal lives with one another. It means when we, we step into spiritual friendships, we're sharing our joys and our despairs, our desires and our fears, um, our successes and our failures. We're, we're cracking open lives to step inside to see what Jesus is doing and shaping, not just the outer world of behavior, but the inner world of, of our hearts and our emotions and our thoughts. Spiritual friendships, uh, require a thoughtful pursuit and presence with one another. Just being with one another. Sometimes that means we're not saying a word. Silence is the best gift we bring. But we're present, we're with. It involves truth speaking, and then of course it involves grace and forgiveness. Um, in her excellent book, Seeking God Together, Alice Freiling described uh, the unique gift of spiritual friendship. Most of us have friends. We have friends who are interested in the same things we're interested in. We have friends who share our faith perspectives. We have friends who help us. But in my mind, the best kind of friends are soul friends. These are the people with whom I can be forthcoming and honest about my own soul. 
And in return, they reflect God's love for me in their words and their actions. These are friends who enflesh God for me. And so God loves and nourishes my soul through these friends. And and these relationships become the vehicle through which God is stepping into our lives and shaping us. Now part of the reason that these spiritual friendships are so challenging to us is because they, they require us to step outside of ourselves and step into what I would describe as loving, redemptive relationships. A loving, redemptive relationship. And it requires courageous honesty, courageous humility in how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we love one another to step into that type of a relationship. Now, as we're looking at 2 Corinthians, Paul is is giving us an insight into just where the the relationship with with the Corinthians had had kind of broken a little bit. And and he's, he's describing and modeling this way of loving, redemptive relationships to us. Um, as, as it was mentioned, we're in the second half of a talk that began last week. I do encourage you to go back and, and listen to it and, and, and capture the spirit. I'm not going to go, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of last week because I have to, to catch you into the story. But, but go back and listen to it. But just, just to kind of catch us up, Paul had courageously confronted the Corinthian church about a serious situation within their family. Um, someone was living in an inappropriate sexual relationship. And the situation was widely known within the body. It wasn't a secret. Um, and the church was, was quite cavalier about it. And in some ways, uh, their, their, their posture was, you know, someone's, someone's private life, even though I know about it, it's not our concern. But too much was at stake for the community not to hold this person accountable, not to hold the family accountable. And so Paul challenged the entire community to confront the situation with courageous honesty. And you can go back and read the story in 1 Corinthians 5. And initially, as these exchanges were taking place, the Corinthian church did not respond very well. you know, who, 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 Paul, really? Why is it your place to speak in to this family matter? Not, not your concern, Paul. Uh, imagine, imagine the scenario today. Imagine a pastor speaking into your sexual practices. It feels invasive. And, and they were pushing back. And they were challenged. They, 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 they didn't know what to do with, with Paul speaking into such a personal issue with, with such openness and frankness. And, and so Paul wrote another letter, not 1 Corinthians or not 2 Corinthians. He wrote another letter. It's, it's sometimes referred to as a painful letter. Uh, we, we're, it's lost to us. We don't have it. We piece it together from a variety of places in the New Testament. And Paul sent that letter uh, with his trusted friend Titus. And boy, I'd love to, leave, I'd love to read that letter. <laughs> and, and here's why. Because that letter turned everything. When they read that letter, they responded. And the narrative shifted. And in what Paul describes for us, beginning in verse 8, 
is his reflecting on the fact that the letter had turned the tide. And that's what we're looking at now. So verse eight, Paul wrote, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this painful letter, I I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Do you you feel the tension in Paul? And I didn't regret it, but I did regret it. Honest conversations are confusing, aren't they? And they are hard for everyone involved. In fact, I would say if an honest conversation is too easy for you, something else is wrong. (laughs) Paul, Paul lived with that. See, honest conversations bring with them uh, people feeling hurt and confused and misunderstood and judged and criticized and all that junk that comes with it. And, and so knowing that his letter would hurt them, Paul wrestled with his own misgivings and his own conflicted thoughts about whether he had done the right thing in writing this letter. You can imagine Paul thinking something like this, you know, have you, well, first of all, have you ever had this moment where you sent off a text or a letter, you said something, you go, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that like all the time, <laughs> you know? And, and you can hear Paul thinking to himself, maybe, oh, maybe I shouldn't have been so honest. You know, I find that sometimes we think or say something like this. I love this person too much to say that because it's gonna hurt them. Um, more often than not, such thinking is self-deceptive and self-protective. See, what we really mean is this, Eh, I don't want to work through the mess of all the hurt that's going to, if I say these things, it's going to blow things up and I don't want to go there. That's more often what we mean. Um, But how we speak the truth, how we speak the truth is really important. Becomes critical. See, love compels us to be truthful. Um, We never show love by not being truthful. See, we never show love by not being truthful. And and yet we we must learn to speak the truth in loving ways. Um, But we must speak the truth. There's another letter Paul wrote, and we're not gonna turn to it, I'm gonna read it to you, um, where Paul spoke about the importance of speaking the truth within a church family. And we often, I'm going to read a passage, it's going to be familiar to many of you, and we often tend to park this into a category of a pastor preaching truth. I think we've missed something. I think more of what he's talking about is a church family learning to speak the truth to one another in the dynamic of our relationships. Uh, Listen to what he says, Um, and I'm just going to read and kind of process some of this with you. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4, you can go back and look at it later. Paul says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We live, people live in a place where things are swirling and blowing and moving us. We get thrown around and and, and, and the risk is that there's a, a lack of maturity that influences us more than following Jesus does. And Paul says, so in the midst of all of that, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. You see the connection. In speaking the truth in love, we all, we as a family mature, we grow. 
See, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We all have a part to play in this. Truth speaking within the body of Christ is not the responsibility primarily of the pastor, the elders, or our spirit. It's all of our deal. We all bear responsibility for that. We all have a part to play in this. He goes on. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And and what he's talking about here, you shouldn't live any longer like you lived before you knew Christ. You gotta change. In the the futility of, of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. However, this is not the way of life you learned. You're different. We're different. See, it's not what we learned when we heard about Christ and we were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life before Jesus to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We are all on the same journey. We are all in this process of putting off this old person and putting on this new person called Jesus. We're all on the same journey, different places, but the journey is the same. We're in this process of of learning to, to walk with Christ, and then Paul says this, therefore, because of that, because we're all in this journey together, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for all members of one body. Wow. Paul says, I want you to stop living dishonestly. Live vulnerably, live open, transparently. Put off all falsehood. Get rid of all the masks and all the pretenses and all the posturing. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. And then he says this, and boy, have we pulled this verse out of its context. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And we apply that to every imaginable thing. And there's truth there. But here's what I want you to notice. Being angry in this place is in the context of speaking truthfully with friends, with followers of Jesus. And when we speak truthfully, things get hurt and there's emotions, and people get angry, and, and, and we're now having to, to work through the feelings that we have. And, and he says, don't allow the hurt and the anger to keep you from dealing with this. Don't let, don't let anger go down. So in the tension of all of this, work through it. And, and he goes on, and then, then, he, then he tells us why, how we do this is so important. And do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that they may benefit those who listen. See, how we do it's important. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Don't don't talk to people out of your bitterness and anger. Don't don't let that stuff just bleed over. Uh, Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. That is the way we're to be living. See, that should be defining who we are as people. I had the thought this week, I was reflecting on something. 
And it struck me that Jesus is a master at speaking in ways that our very being is called into wholeness. Um, We listen to Jesus and our dignity is restored. It's not torn down. Um, But while Jesus' words are always hope-giving and they're loving and they're liberating, they're not always soothing. (laughs) They're truthful. Sometimes Jesus' words are so truthful, they're, they're piercing and they're heartbreaking. Sometimes Jesus' words are are like hammer blows that shatter some wrong idea or, or some idol that we, we cherish. You see, Jesus wants something more of us than being content with our current life. Now, he, his words call us into wholeness. They call us into holiness. They call us into maturity, and they call us into mission. He's always moving us. He's always inviting us to become a better version of ourselves because of Jesus, always. And and so his words penetrate, and truth speaking is critical to that equation. And we're seeing the same thing in in Paul's words to the Corinthians. Let's go back, back again to verse 8. So even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I, I don't regret it, although I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry. Not because it hurt you. But because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. I love this. Um, As hard as speaking honestly had been, it was redemptive. God had used it. to to accomplish something needed and something good. Uh, The sorrow uh, led to needed change. And and while it had hurt for a little while and tore the fabric of the relationship for a short time, it didn't harm their relationship. It actually deepened it. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I'm not gonna park here for a few minutes. Great verse. And what Paul describes here for us is two kinds of sorrow. The first, which he calls a worldly sorrow that brings death. Here's what he's talking about. That is an initial initial sadness in the moment when someone says, I've got something hard to say to you, and it hurts, and go, ooh, ouch, and initially go, "Eh," and you you feel an initial sadness. and, And so we say in that moment, we say the things that we need to say to calm things down in the moment, but once the immediate crisis passes, we, we go on with little gain from the experience and nothing changes. Um, we may feel quietly or privately, we may feel some self-pity. We may even feel some self-condemnation in what was said. In some cases, we may even react in a self-protective rage or anger. But over time, what is true about this kind of sorrow is that a lack of honesty and humility with oneself, it numbs our heart. It deadens our heart. And it opens the door to things like indifference and apathy and resentment. 
and it kills relationships. Um, that's why Paul says this kind of sorrow brings death to us and to the people around us. Um, there's a second kind of sorrow, one that brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Now the salvation here is not coming to Christ. This is not talking about leading people to Jesus. He's talking to Christians here. This salvation is about being set free or delivered to become more like Jesus in the present. And this leads to change. It's leading to maturity. This sorrow produces a change of heart and mind that actually changes the way we live, and because we're changing, we have no regret. We look back at all the mess, and, and we go, man, I'm not who I was 20 years ago and 15 years ago. And five. Yeah, I'm not who I was yesterday. And boy, God is good. I'm changing. I'm becoming more like Jesus. There's no regret. What he's doing in my life is so good. I, I, I bumped across a, a recent meme on Facebook. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. See, that's what, what, what Paul is talking about. Getting to the core of what moves behavior. Um, in 2013, our son Jono, his life hit rock bottom, hit rock bottom due to his alcoholism. And those of you who were a part of Grace back then, you remember walking through this season with me and Verna and the devastation it brought into our family. Uh, Verna and I had been watching it worsen for many, many months, maybe years. And during that time, we, we had lived with our own denial and our own sense of helplessness. And nothing we said or did seemed to change anything. Jono lived with his own denial and helplessness. And when he finally hit rock bottom, um, I, I, I drove up to Indiana where he was in school uh, to confront him with courageous honesty. Actually, it was an intervention. And my hope was that we could somehow convince him to enter rehab because he had lost control. And when I arrived, um, we embraced and both of us just cried. A lot. No words at that point. Uh, Jonathan was in the worst place I had ever, ever seen him. He tearfully acknowledged that he needed a change. But in that moment, I'm being very candid with you, and I spoke to Jonathan this week and asked for permission to again share the story, and he was glad for me to share it. In that moment, I didn't trust his words. I'd heard them all before. <laughs> um, didn't trust the tears. But what happened over the next three or four days began to change the narrative. This time, his sorrow was different. And the most dramatic evidence was when we went to meet with the Dean of Students at Indiana University. And I'll never forget it, we, 
We walked into this massive office with dark woods and big, huge, intimidating desks and just your stereotype <laughs> of a dean's office in a major, a major university. Uh, Jana was a PhD student on full scholarship and a fellowship program at Indiana at the time. And I sat in the back of the room because this wasn't my moment, this was Jonathan's moment. And I watched my son sit across this desk from this, this, this dean and watched as he told the dean the truth about his alcoholism. He shared his love for his fellowship and his desire to remain in the program. But then he said in, with, a, with a level of clarity, I, I, I need to enter rehab and I'm beginning tomorrow. Even if it meant if I lost everything, if you had to take the fellowship away from me, um, I've got to take this step. And in a powerful moment, the dean stood up from behind this big intimidating desk. He walked around the room. He sat right next to Jono and he said, and I don't remember his name, he said, my name is and I'm an alcoholic. Um, and IU could not have been more supportive. And Jono has been sober for eight years now. See, this sorrow produced a repentance that changed his life. See, that's the difference. Well, Paul goes on to describe the changes in the Corinthians that gave similar evidence that their sorrow was the real deal. Verse 11. See, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness. Now they displayed a serious-minded, focused desire to change. What eagerness to clear yourself, a genuine desire to face the issues head on, not defend or justify themselves, but to face the truth, lean into it, to restore their integrity and reputation. What indignation, what alarm. They were disappointed in their own smallness and shallowness, embarrassed by the ways they had initially responded and alarmed by the ripples that their lack of maturity had produced in their family. What longing and what concern. They loved Paul. And they were committed to doing whatever they had to do to restore their friendship with Paul. And their readiness to see justice done. They were committed to doing whatever was needed to be done to make things right. They're gonna hold nothing back. And I love, I love the way Paul described the change he witnessed in the next phrase, at every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Isn't that a great statement? The change is so dramatic. Wow. You have proved yourself innocent. And the experience so moved Paul that he began to share more of his heart at a deeper level in verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And by this we're all encouraged. Now, here's what Paul's saying. It's really, really, really profound. 
while it was necessary to confront the issues at hand with a courageous honesty, that wasn't even Paul's biggest concern. He had a bigger concern. See, they learned something valuable about themselves. They, they learned that who they really are because of Christ and who and what they're most devoted to. In other words, this bump in the relationship, this exchange as difficult and as hurtful as it had been actually exposed something good in them. And Paul's encouragement was found not only in that they had responded well to him. Of course that was true. But his deeper encouragement was in the growth that they saw in themselves. Paul was a proud spiritual father and a proud spiritual friend. And his greatest joy was seeing their growth. And it was unfolding right in front of him that these relationships began to be restored. Well, last week, just a, one, a couple of final thoughts here. Last week, I referred to the reality that unresolved relationship tensions and conflicts and, and let, let's, let's talk about us. Unresolved relational tensions within our family, they are never a personal or private matter. Now, that's what we want to tell ourselves. Ah, this is my deal. But within a family, they're never a personal matter. Um, ripples spread throughout the entire family system. So other people and friendships are always impacted. Now, here's, here's the cool thing. The same is true when we work through our things in a healthy way, only this time the ripples are positive ripples that are felt to the family, and we become more whole and more healthy as a family. And now the ripples are spreading, and it's good. And we are changing and becoming different people. And, and Paul gives us one illustration. He goes on to say, in addition to our own encouragement, we were delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Now, now think about it. Paul had asked Titus to do a difficult thing. He was carrying the letter, this painful letter that was just gonna, whatever it had, he was carrying the letter. And, and, and that put him in an incredibly awkward place. Only his worst fears never played out. What he experienced was the joy of loving, redemptive relationship. Verse 14, I had boasted to him about you. I love this. Paul, Paul wasn't criticizing them to Titus. He wasn't saying, God, I'm going to send this letter to you, and these guys, man, are they messed up. He had boasted to Titus about them. And you've not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Isn't that great? Just the affirmation of that. Friends, relational conflict, relational tensions, bumps, are to be expected within a family like grace. 
Um, we, We all bring our backgrounds and our baggage. We bring our personalities and our preferences. We bring our concerns and our convictions. It all comes with us. And we have to figure out how to love each other. Lots of room for conflict. But here's what is not natural. That we learn to respond the way Jesus wants us to respond. That's not natural. When this very natural thing of tension and conflict begins to emerge because of our love for Jesus and our love for each other, we we just invite Jesus right into the mix and And that's where the courageous honesty and the courageous humility begins to show up. Because so much more is at stake than our hurt feelings or our egos. Our image. Our being right about something or our getting our way. So much more is at stake. Our spiritual maturity is at stake. The very credibility of Jesus and his promise of changing people's lives is at stake. And our trustworthiness in representing Jesus to those who are watching us is at stake. You know, over the past four to six weeks, I've heard stories of people here at Grace modeling this courageous honesty and courageous humility with each other. And these stories kind of find their way back to me and um, I smile and like Paul, I am so encouraged by you. So proud of you. Um, And Grace Church is a healthier place because of you. The reputation of Jesus is healthier because of you. That's who we are. So let's pray. Father, it's good to talk honestly as a family about something we all live with, and that is just the tensions and the bumps and the conflicts that are part of life within a family. And that's what we are. You call us to live with each other. You call us to love one another. And that's just pretty earthy. It's not very romanticized. That's just hard sometimes. But Father, you've given this wonderful vision for us of these loving, redemptive relationships that we can learn to speak with courageous honesty and respond with courageous humility. We, We can all be a part of that because we have the presence of Jesus within us and among us. And so, Father, I'm grateful for so many in our church family who live this way. Thank you. And, Father, may we all be invited. My guess is every one of us right now could think of a person or persons or people or families that we we, we experience tension with right now. Maybe we are in the midst of conflict with them. Father, as we leave this place throughout the week, may you invite us to take the step of courageous honesty, courageous humility, 
as we seek to represent you in a trustworthy way. In Jesus' name.